God who allows his people to be put in the hands of the enemy. It is God who protects the crown of Nebuchadnezzar. It is Jehovah that does all these things. We all need to understand that this was a response. Open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. This morning we're going to be talking about, about captives, captives, what that looks like for us today. So some things we have to keep in mind about the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has brought a lot of confusion to a lot of people for a lot of years. Uh, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation are two books that a lot of commentators simply will stay away from because they say that they're too difficult to understand, and rightly so, because as we look at the book of Daniel, there are some things in front of us that are quite cryptic, and when we look at the prophetic end of things, it could make us nervous not knowing what these things mean and hearing six or 60 different interpretations. So we are going to approach the book of Daniel And we're going to approach the entire idea of faithfulness through the fear as the original recipients of this letter were intended to hear it. As the original recipients of this book were intended to listen and find strength and encouragement and admonition, that's what I hope and pray for all of us this morning. That through this book we will all find faithfulness through the fear that surrounds us. So if you follow along in Daniel 1, 1 through 7, it says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So I just want to say at the outset of the book of Daniel, at the outset of what we're studying right now, There's a lot of symbolism in this book. A lot of symbolism. There is prophecy. And a verse that we all need to keep in mind, this is so vitally important as we're reading the book of Daniel. This is one of the most important verses we can remember. It says this, But concerning the day and the hour, who knows? Everyone say it. No one. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is an important verse for us to remember. Let me just say this one more time. 
But concerning the day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But what we had throughout history are people that say, yes, but I do. Uh, Charles Taze Russell was one of those men. He was the first president of what is now known as the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses. He calculated 1884 to be the year of Christ's second coming. Until his death, he taught that Christ was invisibly present and ruling from the heavens from the date prophesied. Um, But it didn't happen. Christ didn't return. Seventh-day Adventist Church is the largest of several Adventist groups which arose in the Millerite movement of the 1840s in upstate New York, a phase of the Second Great Awakening. William Miller predicted on the basis of Daniel 8, 14 through 16, and the day-year principle that Jesus would return to earth between the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844. In the summer of 1844, Millerites came to believe that Jesus would return on October 22, 1844. They understood that to be the biblical day of atonement for the year. Miller's failed prediction became known as the great disappointment. It didn't happen. Y'all remember Edgar Wissonant published a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is to Happen in 1988. When it didn't happen, he wrote another book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1989 didn't happen. Jack Vanippi, he prophesied that in 2012, Christ would return. It'd be the second coming. Many of the dates have already passed, and he pointed toward 2012 as a possible date for the second coming. After 2012, Vanippi no longer claimed to know the exact date of the second coming, but quoted verses which imply that mankind should know when the second coming is near. It didn't happen. Starting in 2008, Mark Blitz began teaching that Christ's return would correspond with the 28th September 2015 lunar eclipse. His idea, known as the blood moon prophecy, attracted attention. And mainstream media, such as USA Today, got really fired up about this. It didn't happen. So the question is, what does this teach us? Seeing all of these failed prophecies, what does this teach us about Christ's return? What should it teach us? Is Christ not returning? Absolutely not. It should teach us to believe Jesus and not some guy who has a feeling. So in recent days with the coronavirus, there have been a lot of prophetic books that have come out, a lot of prophecies made saying Christ is going to return. Um, There's no way, there's no way, again, I'll say there's no way that the angels of heaven have no idea, that Jesus has no idea, and that guy does. It's just not happening. It's not happening. So... If we have those people, you know, that we're tuning into, just proceed with caution. Because Jesus said that he is coming again. Can I get an amen? We need to believe that. And he said, no one knows the day or the hour. And we need to believe that and not put a whole lot of stock into predictions that people make. Because all it brings is disappointment. When so many people believe and so many people say it's going to be on this day and then it doesn't happen. And then we have our atheist friends that say, oh, well, you guys said this date, and then you guys said this date, and then you guys said this date. It is a damage to our faith when we put stock in what a man says, when Christ himself said, no one knows the day or the hour. So that said, we're going to look at this book, 
with the aim of understanding it through the eyes of the original recipients and drawing off its timeless truths for application as we await his return. Christ is going to return, amen? And none of us know when, amen? That's it. So we begin our account looking at two kings. So I just want to present a point to everyone first. There's two points to today's sermon. The first one is God is sovereign. That means he's the ruler of all things, all time, all space. Nothing happens that God does not allow. All right? So God is totally and completely sovereign. So our story begins with this idea of God being sovereign, and we begin our account with two kings. These two kings' names are Jehoiakim, right, and Nebuchadnezzar. Two kings of two different lands. They're both reigning in an important transition in the history of the world. And they both have names pointing to their gods. So Jehoiakim means Jehovah raises up. Nebuchadnezzar means Nebo protects the crown. Really interesting names when you think about it. On one hand, we have Jehoiakim, the son of the great Josiah. If you remember, he reigned during the great revival of Israel's southern kingdom. His name means Jehovah raises up. And on the other side, we have Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king of the Chaldeans, king of Babylon. And his name means Nebo protects the crown. Both names testify to that time, but not as we think. So Nebuchadnezzar fully believed that his God would protect his crown. Just the same as Jehoiakim thought Jehovah raises up would mean that they would be raised up. But that's not exactly the way that things happened. And we need to keep this in mind. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Amen? And sometimes the things that are before us, although they stink for us and we don't like them very much, they are going to produce a harvest of righteousness. Just we have to get through the hard things. So Jehoiakim and the people of Israel may have thought, yes, God is going to raise us up, just the same as Nebuchadnezzar thought, yes, Nebo, my God, is going to protect the crown. But as it turns out, God does, in fact, protect the crown of Nebuchadnezzar. Not Nebo, not the God that he worships, but Jehovah, the true God, the creator of all. God protects the crown of the bad guy. So, it was the right action, wrong God. It was not Nebo, it was Jehovah. On the other hand, Jehoiakim's name means Jehovah raises up. And this prophecy is also fulfilled, but not as people would have hoped. The hope was undoubtedly that Israel would be raised up by Jehovah, but that's not what happened. Instead, God raises up Babylon, and he hands over his people to this nation. That's point number one. God is sovereign. He gets his way. But we all have to keep in mind that this was God's response. This is God's love. It's his faithfulness. So God is in authority of all things. It is God who raises up Nebuchadnezzar. It is God who allows his people to be put in the hands of the enemy. It is God who protects the crown of Nebuchadnezzar. It is Jehovah that does all of these things. But we all need to understand that this was a response. 
So we say, oh, well, God's up there with cosmic, a cosmic chess game going on. No, it's not. God gave prophets. God gave his word. Israel chose not to listen. Israel made choice after choice after choice. There were some pretty good preachers that were sent out to this crowd of folks. They stood up and they said some pretty hard things, some things many preachers today would, would cower from, would be afraid to say, but they said it. And Israel still didn't listen. They were warned this was going to happen. When you are warned that if you drive recklessly, you may get into a car accident, and you get into a car accident, we all ought not be surprised. Amen? If you keep eating like this, you're going to have health problems. We should not be surprised when they say, you have health problems. We make choices. They were warned again and again, if you continue to avoid doing what I've commanded you to do and do what I've commanded you not to do, you will go into exile. So here we are. Proof of the fact that God is totally and completely sovereign. But this was his response. It was his love. It was his faithfulness. And that's point number two. God is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. Now, this probably seems strange at a glance when we think about this and we watch these things unfold because this passage is a beautiful demonstration in the whole Bible. It's really difficult to find such a beautiful demonstration of God's sovereignty, of his absolute authority, simply because of how he intervenes into the history of not one nation, but two nations. Remember, just because Israel is God's chosen people, that does not mean that God is not God of all people. All this stuff is God's, amen? Everything is God's, amen? Everything. Yet God sovereignly intervenes in two nations' histories to bring about his purpose. We also must recognize that both Israel and Babylon willingly chose this. So is God sovereign? All God's people said, amen. Yes, absolutely. And at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar was conquering Israel just as he had conquered many other lands. It was a choice that he made. Israel chose to disobey God again and again and again. So we see there are a series of choices here. People are making choices, and God sovereignly brings about his end through these choices. It's it's really amazing when you think about it. Really just beautiful. We've got to recognize this. For for Babylon, for Nebuchadnezzar, this was just another victory. He'd already been swallowing up all these nations that surround. It was just another checkmark for him, another one down, another one that's ours. But Israel also chose to have Nebuchadnezzar come and conquer them. They had been warned this was going to happen, so they picked it. There was a diagnosis and a warning from many prophets. They had seen their family in the northern kingdom be swallowed up by a similar force, that of Assyria. They saw them go into exile. So it's pretty bad when you receive warning after warning after warning, stop doing this, stop doing this, and then you see an entire nation next to you hauled off for doing this, and you think, yeah, that was them. That's not me. They went off into exile, you know. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We're, 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 we have the temple. They didn't have the temple. We have the temple. We have all the priests. They had to make their own priests. 
They had the diagnosis, the warnings. They saw their family be hauled off, swallowed by a similar force, thrown into exile. And this is literally like an addict who ignores the fines and court fees and ends up in jail. He picked it. You listen to these guys that were here last week. They were all honest. They chose what they chose, right? This, this, this wasn't like a, all of a sudden they just were compelled to do this thing and they couldn't get away from it. They chose to choose it and to continue to choose it, the same as Israel did. And God in his sovereignty brings about through the course of events what is before us this morning. And the Bible clearly tells us that it was God who gave Jehoiakim and Israel into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God did this. God chose to do this. And it's really a beautiful testimony if you think about it. It says this in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Wow. But God, his sovereignty is always at work for our good. It's always at work for our benefit. Some of us right now, we're living in a time of exile. Maybe a huge exile, maybe a small exile. But some of us are living in a land of exile right now where God has allowed certain events to come into our lives that are not pretty and that we don't like very much. We don't like what's happening. Come to us as warnings, or we've already received the warnings, and now we're in some hard times. Warning time is over. No longer warnings. Now we have wanderings. And... If you ever wonder, while you wander, when it will be over, we really need to think for just a second about these people and think for the question that they probably asked themselves when they were hauled off. Is this Babylon or is this my new home? Am I ever going back? Are things ever going to go back to the way they were before? This is a question you're asking we can definitely take heart from this passage this morning. Why? Because Christ has said, I have overcome the world. So even if we're wandering, God has not left us alone. Amen? He's not left us alone. God sovereignly gave Jehoiakim into the hand of the enemy, and what's more, he also allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take some of the vessels from his house, from his temple. And not only that, it's not bad enough Nebuchadnezzar came in and stole some of these golden vessels. Where did he put them? In his temple to his idol. God allowed this to happen. Say, how could he do that? Those were God's things. Those were sacred things. Does God need golden lampstands? Does God need gold things? No. Does he need gold basins? No. What did those things add to God? Nothing. They added nothing to God. Those things were to make Israel's distinction clear. Worship was to cost something. Serving God was to be distinct from every other activity. Those things were to be treated as though they were sacred and they were used in worship. And they were taken to Babylon where the sacred worship of Jehovah would no longer take place with them. When we treat the worship of our Creator as a monotonous duty, 
We really shouldn't be offended when someone takes the resources that we use and uses them for their God. That's exactly what happened. It was monotonous. They were doing what they had to do. They were showing up to church. They were participating. They were going home. Well, we've done that. When we treat the worship of our Creator as a monotonous duty, we should really not be offended when people take the resources that we use for that and offer them up for their idols. What's interesting is, when we think of God being faithful, we typically think of manna in the wilderness. We typically think of, well, they go out there and they are in the wilderness and God's going to provide for them. Or we think of like George Mueller praying when there was no bread for the orphans and all of a sudden, baker here, I have day-old bread I need to get rid of. Your orphans are fed. That's what we always think of when we think of God's faithfulness. It's amazing. George Mueller in his own testimony rises from his knees from praying and there's the knock at the door. But God's faithfulness, in fact, it's not just when he provides things that he reveals his faithfulness. It's also just when he shows up, when he shows up in discipline. So the faithful parent does not only provide for their children. If they do, they have brats. That's all we do is give our kids things, give our kids things all the time, then we end up with brats. God is disciplining his kids here. A faithful parent will discipline their children for their good. One of the benefits for myself is not going to Walmart because of the pandemic, because I just don't like Walmart very much. And when I go there, I see some of these children that are behaving just so awfully. I remember a three-year-old getting out of line, and the mom grabbing this kid by the elbow saying, Knock it off! And he said, Shut up, Mom. And man, how many of you, if that was you when you were younger, you would not have lips to speak with? Yeah, all of us, right? She says back, shut up. Faithful parent disciplines their child, never gets to that. God is disciplining his kids here. And interestingly enough, even though we find ourselves in the place of a three-year-old sometimes, that's exactly where Israel is. They were told, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and they did it. It's amazing. God corrects us, and then what do we want to do? Correct him for his correction. What do we want to say? Shut up, Mom. We're being corrected because we're out of line. Say, nah, don't you worry about it. This is me. Israel is hauled off because of discipline. And what's interesting, there's a breakdown in the status of these men. This is really amazing to have before us this morning. As you think about this, uh, God allows these men to be put through a system of reprogramming. That's exactly what happens here. So there's a breakdown in their status. The choice men, all right, so it's not like Nebuchadnezzar goes out and he just picks anyone. He says, go and pick the choice men. Pick the best men. Pick those of nobility. Pick the choicest men. Those are who I want to serve me. So the choice men get a chance to be in the king's training program, but it's actually a retraining program. It's actually reprogramming. The the prerequisites for this are as follows. They were to be young, no defect, good-looking, and intelligent in every branch of wisdom. So the captives have a new home in a strange land. The sacred things have been taken out of the temple, put in the temple of an idol. So these sacred things now have a new home also. And then they come and they go through all the people of Judah, all the Israelites, and they pick out the best of the best. 
And God literally gives his people into the hand of the enemy, and then he allows them to be picked through like the treasures of the temple were. Just as sacred things will be put to new use in the house of idols, the choicest young men here are going to be put to new use in the service of this king, in this land of idols. Israel chose national disobedience, and now for that they suffer national discipline. And they must learn how to live in reality for a little while that was only a fantasy before. A place where God is completely and utterly disconnected. So now it's not like they're going to say, oh, I sinned, I can go to the temple and offer up a sacrifice. That's done. That's not going to happen. They're literally living in a nightmare. They enjoyed the promised land, but quickly forgot the promiser. They enjoyed the deliverance of their fathers, but they forgot the deliverer. Think about the combat veteran who never knew how much he liked to walk until he lost his legs. That's where Israel is. You don't know how good things were until you don't have them anymore. Look at the reprogramming plan and how this thing unfolds here. There's four parts to it. First part is education. Education. So they are literally to learn the literature of the Chaldeans. So uh, did Israel have their own literature? Absolutely they had their own literature. As a matter of fact, they were to learn uh, the scriptures. Deuteronomy is where you'll find most of the teaching about this. God had given them instructions for teaching their native Hebrew culture in the book of Deuteronomy. They are to teach the next generation of their history. These are the things that God has done for us. This is who God is and who we will continue to be. So they were educated already. They would learn the history of God's law. They were to learn God's law. God's law contained all they needed to live a productive life. But they set it aside. They paid lip service to it only. So God sent them prophets to kind of pull their attention back. You guys aren't getting this. Look, this is where your hearts and your minds need to be. But they wouldn't pay attention. So now they will receive a new education in the land of Babylon. The language. Hebrew uh, was the national language of the Hebrews. That's what the Israelites um, spoke to one another. If they knew any other foreign languages, it was simply because of the foreigners that either lived with them or on the outskirts. Hebrew was the national language. One language makes a country very strong. Think for just a moment about the Tower of Babel. What was the concern that God had when they were all getting together? They all speak one language. They can all devote themselves to one purpose. Not be able to be stopped. So God scattered them. One language makes a nation very strong. These men are going to be re-educated. They're going to learn a new language. The language of the new land that they live in. Third, their diet's going to get changed. We're going to talk more on that next week, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. We will say this, Leviticus 7.19 says this, Also the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat of such flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belong to the Lord, it is uncleanness to him. 
That person shall be cut off from the people. God had a specific diet. He said, these things you eat, these things you don't eat. Now you come into a foreign land, and they're not only going to eat the diet of this foreign land, they're going to eat the king's diet. What the king eats, they'll eat. What the king drinks, they'll drink. And lastly, in Israel, one of the most important things about you was your name. One of the most important things, which is why they took such care to name their children. You had eight days to think of it. You have a male, you have eight days to come up with a name for him. And we can think, because we all know, there's some, some moms in here, or friends with moms, that you know how long moms think of names for their children when they know they're pregnant. Hebrew people took the extra eight days uh, as according to the law and they came up with a name for this child. A name is very important. As we see with Jehoiakim, these names have powerful meaning. And often, if you look through the Bible, you will see these names were fulfilled in some way, shape, or form. At least their meaning was. Well, now as they enter into this new land, the identity that they had in the land of Israel shall be changed because they're going to have a new name. No longer shall you be Daniel. Your name now shall be Belteshazzar. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. This is what they're going to go through. So literally, their entire life is going to be deconstructed and then reconstructed. They're going to be reprogrammed and built up in this new land, in this new way of living. And the truth that we all need to take away from this is your circumstances do not infringe upon the sovereignty or faithfulness of God. They prove it. So when we are in a rough place, like we find these young men, the circumstances that they're in do not disprove God's sovereignty. They do not disprove God's faithfulness. They prove God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness. So they find themselves in what seems like exile, and we think that God has given up. Sometimes we find ourselves in this position where we're like, you know, where are you, God? Why are you so far away? Why do you not answer my prayers? It seems like you are a million miles away from me and you're going to do nothing to stop these things. You're not going to be here, but he has not given up. Amen? He's not given up. God has not given up. Things... Honestly, if you look at your life right now, you look at your life today, things may get hard. They might. And there may be a lot of changes ahead. But God is still in control, and he will not forsake us. You know, picture yourself for just a second going to this strange land of Babylon, being under this strange king. Now you're selected away from your family. You're no longer going to be with them. Instead, you're going to be in the king's palace and the king's service. You're going to be eating this new diet. You have a new boss, new man in charge. Your language has changed. Your food has changed. And also, your name has changed. Everything about you has been completely and totally tossed away and replaced. But God is not going to leave these guys here by themselves. And he will not leave us either find ourselves in a strange place, God will be with us. And because of that fact, because of the fact that God will be with us, he will not forsake us, he's not going to leave us, he will be with us in the fire, he will be with us in the trial, he will be with us in the foreign land, he'll be with us in our wanderings, he'll be with us in our wanderings, God will always be with us, amen? 
I will not leave you or what? Forsake you. He promised this. Because of that fact, we must learn, right? We have to learn. What do we have to learn? We have to learn faithfulness through the fear. You know, I think of a child that gets lost in the grocery store and they're away from their parents for just a short time. And, you know, you're thinking three or four year old kid, they don't know where they are. They're crying, they're screaming. Is dad coming back? Is mom coming back? Where are they? What's going on here? I'm all by myself. Now think about an adult. You're taken out of your land, your home, the place where you live, where all your family is, where all your friends are. They go and they strip your temple of all of its precious and beautiful things, all the things you used to use to worship God, and they take those and put those in their temple. Once we get to this foreign land, they start unpacking these sacks. They start pulling out all of this precious gold that once was used to pour out wine onto the altar, that once was used uh, as a basin for the washing up to show the holiness, to show this display of holiness. All these things are now put in this temple of idols and now you're taken and you're putting this plan taken away from your family you're going to lose all of this stuff you're going to be a completely new person would you be afraid i would but god will teach us through the book of daniel above all else how to be faithful even when we're afraid 